Well, good morning and welcome. It is good to see everyone here. I'm sorry that my time here is so short, I won't, I won't get to know you very well. And the truth is that it would take me a long time. I'm very bad. I'm not one of those preachers that's really good with names. I'm not one of those preachers that's really good with faces. I'm just one of those preachers that's really bad at all of that. But I, one of the great blessings of being a preacher is getting these opportunities to occasionally go to other congregations and see Christians who are standing firm in the faith, who are serving God, to meet family. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity to be here and to meet you. I want to thank the elders not only for bringing me here, but also for accommodating my selfish request. It is really just for me that I asked that the Lord's Supper be offered after the sermon, and that's because after this particular sermon, every time I do it, I want to partake of the Lord's Supper right afterwards. It has... It prepares me mentally and emotionally for remembering Jesus and saying thank you. Thank you to him. There is, in the United States, an elite force of soldiers known as the Navy SEALs. There are many people who want to be a Navy SEAL, but only the very few, the very special, get to be a Navy SEAL. It's a voluntary force. The people in the Navy can join it, but they have to pass tests and challenges. And there's one particular week that is just exceptionally awful, challenging for them. They're going to go through a week in which they're going to have, I believe, total four hours of sleep. They're going to be put on the shore and have the water wash over them, over their face. It is what we do to torture other people. They're going to be forced to do push-ups, to lift logs, to do all sorts of things that are physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. In every way, they are exhausted. And only those who absolutely refuse to quit get the honor of being a Navy SEAL. And one of the greatest challenges isn't all the things they face, all the pain, all the agony, all the struggle... It's the option to quit. There is, everywhere they go, everything they're doing, there's this bell that's always right next to them. And all they ever have to do to end the hunger, end the cold, end being on the, 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 the brink of failure, the brink of death, they're so close, they're pushing it, their limits... All they ever have to do is go over and ring the bell. Ding, ding, ding. And they don't get shame when that happens. They get a warm blanket, a hug, a donut, and hot chocolate. They're not shamed. And the reason why they're not shamed is that makes it all that much more harder for everybody who's still going. Those who quit are rewarded. So that bell is awfully enticing. And I realized something once while I was reading the Scriptures. 
I realized that Jesus always had a bell. In uh, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53, it says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus is right there saying, you know what I could do right now? I could quit. I don't have to go through this. And in fact, what we had read for us this morning in John chapter 12, we read down to 20 through 26, and it's where Jesus realizes the time has come. Some Greeks have come to ask for Jesus, and he knew that was the sign. That's the moment. Here we are. Here it is. The time has come. And what he says in the next verse, John 12 and verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour, but look what was on his mind as an option. Save me. Stop it. To quit. Jesus, throughout the events that we're going to read about, always had a quitting bell right next to him. And he was not going to be offered a warm blanket, a hug, donut, and hot chocolate. If he quit, he'd go back to heaven. Away from the world. Away from the wicked generation back into the very presence of God, there is no reward like that one. And it is always right there. And so I changed the way I read the events that happened from this moment, from the giving of the Lord's Supper until Jesus dies. And I looked at it from what he's experiencing with the option to quit. And it was profound for me. And I hope that it will be useful to you. While Jesus suffered, this is what was going on. I want to start off at the beginning when he's offering up the Lord's Supper. He's gathered his disciples around him. And this is the time of anticipation. And anticipation is awful. If you've ever had surgery, the anticipation is far worse than the surgery. During the surgery, you're knocked out. You're not aware. You don't know what's going on. But the anticipation, there's so much about what's going to happen. How's it going to go? I know when I had my first surgery, I was terrified because I heard there's a small percentage of people in the world who don't get knocked out. They feel everything. And I'm like, I am a, I'm always the small percentage of the world. It's going to be me. The anticipation was awful. If you want to know, it was not me. And I was thankful for that. So Jesus is facing awful anticipation. He comes from that moment. He says, the time has come. And immediately it says that he was troubled. Jesus does not go on the cross with just incredible strength and ease. He struggles each step of the way and it starts with the anticipation. He knows exactly what is going to happen, what it's going to feel like, and what it means. And so he starts off by saying goodbye. Goodbye. 
John 13, 33 says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Friends, our relationship's about to change. I'm going away. And as he's sitting at the table in which he's going to offer the Lord's Supper, and he's thinking about what's going to happen, he says in John 13, in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's sitting at the table around the people he has blessed, he has helped, he has grown close to. They've grown close to him. And he says, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And they don't know who it is because it's not obvious. We know it's Judas, but it wasn't obvious to them. They all start thinking, who could it be? Nobody just points and says, it's Judas, obviously. But they all start thinking of themselves as innocent. And so Jesus goes on and he tells them, no, you're all going to fail me tonight. Every one of you. To Peter, we, who was also called Simon in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, he says, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan is after you tonight to tear you into tiny little pieces. Jesus would go on to tell him, and you are going to deny me three times before this night is over. Peter never thought he would do that. The other disciples, of course, never thought they would do anything. But Jesus says in Matthew 26 and verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. These are his friends. These are the ones that are closest to him. And as he is feeling the anticipation of what's going to happen, he looks at them and says, that one's going to betray me. That one's going to deny me three times. And they are all, all of them are going to fail me. Who am I doing this for? They're not worth it. And all the while, while he's feeling these things, and he's thinking these things, and he's saying these things, there's a bell. And all he has to do is ring it, and he's gone. And he doesn't have to go through all these things for these people. So what does he do instead? Well, first, I guess we should mention what they do. They've just been told that Jesus is leaving, saying goodbye. They've been told that he's, one of them's going to betray, one's going to deny, they're all going to fail, and they, of all things, debate which one of us is greatest. There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And so what did Jesus then do? In this scenario, under this circumstance, he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. 
wash the feet of the one who would betray him, the one who would deny him, and all of them who would fail him. He didn't quit. Well, the anticipation continues as Jesus moves towards the garden. And maybe they didn't fully grasp it. Maybe they didn't see what we've been told. Jesus has, it's been revealed to us how many times in there he's deeply moved. He's going through the, the pain, the inner pressure. Maybe they didn't see it. But then in Mark chapter 14 and verse 34, Jesus just tells them. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I hurt. I hurt to the point that I feel like dying. Keep watch for me. Other passages, he tells them, pray and keep watch. And then he goes a little distance away, and he starts praying. And the description in Luke 22 and verse 44 to emphasize the struggle he's going through, the hurt. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And what is he asking for? Father, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but thine be done. But he's asking, I don't want what comes next. While he's praying that, across the valley, in the city, while he's praying that, Judas is saying, gather your men. I know where he's at. Let's go get him. And Jesus, after praying, he goes to his disciples and he's told them, I am in agony. I am in pain. And he comes back and he finds them asleep. He tells them, wake up. Pray. Keep watch. Do this for me. He comes back every time and he finds them asleep. While Jesus is praying, he knows what's going on. And there's a bell. They're not worth it. They're not worth what I'm about to go through. And he could have quit. But what did he do? In his prayer, in his prayer to God, he asked God to be with these people that were failing him. In John 17, 23 through 24, Jesus said in his prayer, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. He didn't quit. He said, I want to be with them. I want to be with them in heaven. I want to be with them for eternity. 
Well, then the anticipation comes to a swift end during that prayer. When he comes back, he says, here he comes, behold, the betrayer. And so now everything's going to happen very quickly. And it happens, start off in the garden where you have the arrest. And Judas comes up to him. In Matthew 26, verse 49, it says, Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And with an act of affection, betrays Jesus. It's not just an, an act of an affection. It's as close as you can get. Judas comes face to face with Jesus. And did you notice that word, immediately. Judas has spent years now with Jesus. He has seen the miracles. He has witnessed the power. And he doesn't hesitate. There seems to be no second thought. He just goes right up to Jesus and kisses him so that everybody else knows, here he is in the dark. This is them. This is the one you want to arrest. And Jesus, his response, that painful word, calls him a friend. And there's this bell. But Jesus notices that the people that are arresting him, this isn't justice. This isn't righteousness. This is cowardice. This is corruption. Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 55, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. I was always there right where you could have had me, but you wouldn't do it because this isn't about justice. This is about something else. And he says in Luke 22 and verse 53, you see, this is all God's plan, right? This is supposed to happen. But that's not how Jesus sees it at this moment. What he says is, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This is Satan's plan. This is wickedness rejoicing. They're getting the Son of God. They're getting all of mankind to resist Him, to rebel against Him. This is the hour of darkness. And there's a bell. And it could all change. And Jesus had spent a long time now preparing His disciples. Ever since Peter had confessed to Jesus you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Ever since that moment, Jesus began teaching them, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to, we're going to, be, uh, I'm going to be killed, and then third day I'm going to be resurrected. He keeps telling them that all the time. And do you know what? They didn't understand it. You know how frustrating it is to teach somebody and for years they just don't get it? Because Peter, rather than saying, hey, this is exactly like what Jesus said, Peter grabs a sword and then struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. There's a quitting bell. He said, you guys are impossible. You're not worth it. But he didn't quit. So what did he do? First... To those arresting him, he begged that they let the disciples go. Don't arrest them. 
don't hurt them. Second, he picks up the ear that has been chopped off from the person who's attacking him, and he healed him. But he did not quit. And then what happens after that is Jesus goes through these trials, if you want to call them trials, if you want to call it justice, that's not what's going on. But he's being tossed back and forth from court to court as there is a particular outcome they are seeking and they're going and doing whatever they can to make it happen. And so Jesus is forced from court to court and he endures having people lie about him. It says in Matthew 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two came forward, and finally they had some sort of an agreement. But what it's saying there is, one, the intention. They weren't looking for truth. They were looking for liars who would agree with each other. They kept looking for false witness. And many false witnesses came forward. Jesus is in the courts of God's people. And over and over, he hears them make lies about him with the intent to legally kill him. And then, in Luke 22, verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. What an interesting picture. You cover Jesus' head so he can't see. And you get a bunch of guys around him, punch him, and say, ha, who did it? We are believers that Jesus is the Son of God. He knew who punched him. He knew what they'd had for breakfast. He knew what their dreams were and what their fears were. But he let them surround him and keep punching him. In verse in Matthew 26, it adds that they spat in his face as they were doing this. And even today, even today we know that's awful. That is not to be done. You do not spit in someone's face. But they're coming up to him and spitting in his face, and there's a bell. And they're not worth what he's about to go through. And he could have quit. But I think what makes it even worse is while he's getting punched and spat on and slapped and lied about on the other side of the wall, there's his very close friend, Peter was being asked, do you know Jesus? And the first time he says no. And the second time he says no. 
But then it says on that third time, just like Jesus prophesied, just like Jesus knew would happen, it says in Matthew 26 and verse 74, then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. Cursed and swore. Growing up, I always thought those were bad words. That's what that meant, bad words where you, you, you bleep it out. That's not what curse and swear means. To swear is to promise. And to curse is to call upon God to do something bad to somebody. You understand what Peter's doing here? I promise to you, I swear to you, may God send me to hell if I know Jesus. He is calling for himself to be cursed if he knew Jesus. While Jesus is getting punched and lied about. And there's a bell. And he's found innocent. Now, what do we do with him? How do we punish him? You want to talk about an injustice. He's found innocent. There's nothing wrong with him. He's done nothing wrong. But he's not released. So they bring him in front of the crowd, and you have two choices. You have Barabbas, who is a murderer, and Jesus, who's a healer. And so in Mark 15, verse 7, says, The man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Now imagine being Jesus. I don't know if he could see the crowd or not, literally, physically. But again, he is the Son of God. He can see the crowd. He can see the crowd of God's people. He can see their heart. He can see the vitriol on their face as they cry out for him to be crucified. But that's, you know, they didn't cry out, kill him. They didn't cry that out. They didn't ask that Jesus be sent to prison you know, he's caused an awful lot of problems, and we just don't want to ever see him again. Put him back in a dark corner so we never see him again. They didn't ask for that. They didn't ask for him to be killed. They asked for him to be crucified. What they asked for is give him the worst that we have. Make it as painful as possible and make it public. We want to watch. Crucifixion is not just a death penalty. It is torture, shameful torture, public torture. And they demanded that from Jesus. And there's a bell. And he could have quit. Any moment, he could have quit. So what did he do? Shocked Pilate. 
It says in Matthew 27 and verse 14, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. He didn't defend himself. He didn't cry out and complain saying, this is, this is horrendous. This is wrong. This is not justice. He didn't call upon God to bring judgment upon them. He didn't complain. He just was quiet as they punched him, as they lied, as they denied, and as they condemned. And then, let me be honest, I would have quit. I would have quit by then. But if I hadn't, if by some strange circumstance I had not quit, when they lowered me onto a piece of wood and took a spike and a hammer and just rested it, just rested it, I would have quit. And I don't know how they did it with Jesus. They're going to put holes in his hands and in his feet. And I don't know if you know this, but they didn't always do that for crucifixion. That's going to be one of the telling marks of Jesus, how you know that it's him, is you're going to see the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet. I don't know if they did it one hand at a time, but could you imagine taking one of your hands and letting them do the next one and then the feet and even if they did it all at once do you think it took one hit to get it through he let them raise their hammer multiple times to impale him to a cross and he could have quit and I guarantee you I would have quit no way I could have endured that and so they crucify him and It says in Luke 22, verses 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong page. And John 19, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garment and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The men who had been punching him, who had scourged him, who impaled him to the cross, now are at Jesus' feet. Jesus is bleeding 
horribly. He is bruised and beaten. Now gasping for breath. And just below him, these soldiers are looking at his clothes saying, what should we do? And here you can have a piece and you can have a piece and you can have a piece. And they come to this one piece and they say, whoa, we shouldn't hurt this. This is precious. After what they'd done to the Son of God, and even if they didn't know that, and they didn't, even if they just thought it was a man, it was a man that they had done this to, and then they take a piece of cloth and say, this is precious, let's not hurt it. And Jesus is right there to see them do it. And there's a bell. And then it says in Matthew 27, they start mocking him again. Matthew 27, verse 39 says, Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Do you understand that these are people that are just walking by? This is the most significant moment in the history of everything. The Son of God is on the cross as the plan of salvation to bring salvation to all men. But these people are busy about their days. They're just going by, entering into the city, and they see a man who's dying. A man who's in agony and in pain, and their thought is, we should mock him. And they know who he is based on the way they mock him. I wonder how many of them knew people that he'd healed. Knew people he had so much helped. But they see him in pain and agony and think, let's make fun of him and make it worse. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. Now those were the guys who were gleeful. This was what they had dreamed about. This was what they'd worked for and it was finally coming about. They'd caught him. They'd gotten the death sentence. And they're just rejoicing as Jesus is dying. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Their last breaths. They're in pain and agony and judgment as well. But for some reason, they think it's the right thing to do at that moment, at that time, to mock Jesus. And through every step of the way, there was a quitting bell. So what did Jesus do? I don't know what it sounded like when a man's gasping for breath and gone through these things. I wonder what those words sounded like when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
But after he'd said that, after he'd endured this for six hours, he finally quit. He quit breathing. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. To say thank you for not quitting. I want to say three things real quick. Don't you ever, not for a moment, think that God gives up on you. Don't think that you've ever sinned in such a way that you've become so bad that God wants to save other people but not you. Don't you ever think that because you look through this. Who is worth it? Who was worth this sacrifice? Who was worth all of this that Jesus went through? He did it not for worthy people. He did it for you and me, and He has shown us He will not quit on us. So don't ever doubt Him. Secondly, after seeing what He went through, what are you willing to go through this week? How much pleasure does Satan have to offer you this week for you to quit? And say, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to care what God wants. I'm going to sin against Him. What threat of, of, of torture, what threat of pain does He have to offer to us before we say we're going to quit? We serve a Lord who did not quit for us. Do not quit on Him. And finally... Don't quit on each other. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus is setting the example for us. It says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Just as Jesus loved us, sacrificed himself for us, would not quit for us, that's how we're supposed to treat one another. Now go ahead and tell me, Tell me how some Christian has failed you because it's all happened. It's happened to all of us. We've been hurt by Christians. They have failed us. Tell me how much it hurt. Tell me how wrong it was. Tell me how painful it was. Tell me how much it caused you to want to quit. But then remember Jesus and He didn't quit for you. Don't quit. Even when you face great injustice, from people who should know better, from people who are your friends, from people who are your family, from people who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not quit. Because Jesus set the example. 
he showed us how to love one another and how to love God and how much he loves us. If you're not a Christian, what an insult to not respond to an invitation when a God has gone this far out of his way to save you, when the Son of God has endured this much to save you, and for you to say, no, I want to keep living in sin, don't, don't do that. If you're not a Christian, become one. And if you're a Christian who's fallen back into sin, set it aside, give it up, and come back. You know this God will not quit on you. He'll take you back. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing?